This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting to hold politicians accountable for better health care. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Bob Comsick for Libby Zneimer. After promising to increase the CPP survivors' pension in the last two elections, Canadians are still waiting for the Trudeau Liberals to make good on that pledge. Even if Ottawa eventually does, wait till you hear how long an expert thinks it may take until any changes are fully phased in. And then you get to step into a tasty time machine that chronicles 150 iconic Canadian restaurants dating from pre-Confederation to today. More coming up later with Gabby Payton, author of Where We Ate. But first... Here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. While video gaming is most popular among younger Canadians, only 15% of those 65 and older play. AARP, the American version of the Canadian Zoomer advocacy group CARP, finds there are over 52 million American gamers over 50. That's why the AARP recently held its first-ever Games Summit, which heard 7 in 10 older gamers feel the games are not designed with them in mind. That may change, though, as part of living well as you age is staying mentally engaged, socially connected, and, of course, some well-deserved relaxing. Move over, George. A fully electric flying car has received approval to start testing on the road and in the air. The California automaker calls it one small step for planes, one giant one for cars. May see it in the sky in a couple of years. Cost? About three hundred grand. A first in Seoul, South Korea. An android robot takes the conductor's podium to lead a performance by that country's national orchestra. The robot first bowed to the audience before waving its arms to conduct. The actual conductor says it showed humans and robots can coexist and complement each other rather than one replacing the other. A Danish study shows women in their 50s who took hormone replacement therapy for menopausal symptoms had an increased risk of dementia within 20 years. Medical records of some 56,000 women between the years 2000 and 2018 were examined, and over 5,500 were later diagnosed with dementia or Alzheimer's. Experts disagree, though, saying therapies have changed a lot, and side effects now may be quite different from those back then. Testosterone supplements for men with low levels are not linked to heart attacks, contrary to the finding of a 13-year-old study. This new one, from the Cleveland Clinic, 
published in the New England Journal of Medicine, looked at over 5,200 men between the ages of 45 and 80 who had pre-existing or a high risk of cardiovascular disease and who reported symptoms of low testosterone with confirmed low levels. About 3% of men in that age group have below normal numbers. Guys, you're advised to see your doctor and have your levels checked before you take anything. I'm Bob Comsick, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. During the last two federal election campaigns, the Trudeau Liberals vowed to hike the CPP survivors' benefit by 25%. They delivered on a promise to increase old-age security for those 75 and older, but the survivors' pensions continue paying little or nothing in some cases. Actuary Doug Chandler explains where things stand now. Currently, we have a survivor's benefit that looks like it was designed in 1965 because it was. Uh, when you look at it, you, you see it makes sense in a world where women don't work, certainly not after they're married, and most households are single-income households. It doesn't work as well today. So that's why it's time to look at survivor's benefits. What's the formula for figuring this out? The simple answer is... If it's a single-income family like you would have seen in 1965, the survivor will receive 60% of the member's retirement pension. What's the, the uh, difficulty? The, the more complicated answer is if the member is receiving a reduced or an increased pension because they started their CPP before or after 65, then you go back to the age 65 pension, not the reduced or increased amount. And if the survivor has a CPP retirement pension of their own, then they're not going to get the full 60%. They're going to get less, perhaps nothing, if they have, or they're already getting a maximum CPP retirement pension. There have been changes to the basic retirement pension, a number right. of those, but no real changes to that basic structure designed for the widow of a man who's the sole breadwinner. Do you find that? Head scratching that that hasn't been dealt with yet. Well, well I do and I don't. Um, it's going to be very difficult to deal with because as soon as you start talking about this, people take sides. There are single people who will always be single who see no reason why married members should get benefits that are better than theirs, and there are married people and uh, survivors who and widows and widowers who don't feel they're getting enough. The biggest problem we have right now is people don't know what they're going to get. If you ask somebody who's a couple who are retired what they think their survivor benefit is going to be, they probably say they don't know. And if they think they know, they probably get it wrong. It really is that complicated. I've left out some complications uh, of the way that the adjustments are made. When you get a statement from the the government of what your CPV benefit will be, they don't bother telling you what the survivor benefit will be. And there's nothing on their website that would help you figure it out for yourself. Well, given the aging population, don't you think it's uh, more pressing than ever to resolve this? It's time, yes. How do you go about it? To be fair, there are significant changes that are underway to CPP retirement benefits, and those changes will flow through to bigger survivor benefits. The problem is that people somehow imagine that's going to help them now, and it won't. 
the improvements that were adopted in 2016 had to be fully funded because that's the change that was made back in the 90s to the way CPP worked. So we now have higher contributions to pay for those improvements, but it'll be 45 years before they're fully phased in. And for survivors, it will take longer than that because the survivor pension is based on the, the retirement benefit that went before. Once those are fully phased in, half a century or more from now, people will be getting, in some cases, 50% bigger survivor benefits than they're getting now. So there are improvements in the works. Half a century? we still have this structure that somebody who's getting a maximum pension might not get anything. And you pointed out half a century. It's going to take that long to work its way through the system? That's the track we're on now for the improvements to to retirement benefits and the related improvement to survivor benefits that have already started. An improved survivor's pension applied to current and future recipients or just to those starting to receive it after an increase were to take effect? People who are already drawing their pension, it's pretty difficult to change it. That's not something you would normally do. If it were to happen, it would have to be on some sort of an optional basis that, uh, for example, if they elect uh, pension splitting, right now pension splitting stops when when the first person dies. You could somehow give them the option to elect pension splitting and have that carry on for longer. But it would have to be something on a reasonably cost-neutral basis within the structure of how CPP is funded now. People who retire in the future, it could become part of what they elect when they retire, just like they elect when their pension starts. They could elect what kind of a survivor benefit they want on a basis that either wouldn't cost anything or wouldn't cost enough to upset the, the funding formula and the contribution rates that we have now. Some see this as the biggest challenge facing Canada next to climate change. Agree? Disagree? I think the way you would put it is our aging population is a major challenge facing the, facing Canada. Maybe not the biggest, but certainly a big long-term challenge, the same way as climate change is a big long-term challenge that's been put off too long and that we have catching up to do. This is just part of the aging picture. And that's an important thing to think about when you look at CPP survivor benefits. You can't look at them in isolation. You have to look at if you pay this extra survivor benefit, how much will the member actually get to keep after taxes, after GIS clawbacks, after OAS clawbacks? If the whole package of taxes and benefits for seniors that is needs to be considered in the context of an aging population. Actuary Doug Chandler, who's also an associate fellow of the National Institute on Aging. I'm Bob Comsick, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, the author of a book for foodies. Where We Ate looks at 150 iconic Canadian restaurants from before Confederation to now. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP giving you the opportunity to get involved and make your community a better place for seniors. Find out more at carp.ca. You have a go-to place to eat, be it breakfast, lunch, or dinner. You may want to check out a new book that features many well-known eateries, some that you may not have heard of or haven't yet checked out. Then there were those that 
predate Confederation, thus the title, Where We Ate. I caught up with Gabby Payton, who's on the East Coast, to learn what inspired her to write it. For me, it actually started, I was writing a column for the Food Bloggers of Canada about iconic Canadian foods, uh, and I started finding out all these origin stories about donaires and poutine and how they all came to be, and so that really was kind of the, the beginning of my research. So then I kind of just fell down a wormhole of all these awesome restaurants across Canada and our history. That was the light bulb moment. But why choose the chronological route, which you've done here? Why did you do that? Well, for me, it was really, you know, as I was doing all this research, you know, kind of the socio-political aspect of it or different waves of immigration that kind of started popping up throughout my research. So it really made like the most sense to do it chronologically. So you could kind of track different eating habits and different trends in restaurants and how that evolved since like before Confederation. When did eating out become a thing? 60s? Yeah, absolutely. It was really like after the war, like 50s into the 60s, when really like the tiki trends and all those things kind of took off. Because before then, people were really just eating just like for utility, right? And so then we had theme restaurants and, you know, dining out became like a night out. Where We Ate features 10 restaurants from each decade and goes into the dining trends that evolved. All right. So we talked 50s and, and 60s. Give us a, a restaurant from each of those decades. Would you like one that's still open? Or sure. would you like one maybe that's still, yeah. Uh, okay, believe it or not, Boston Pizza was actually founded in the 1960s in Edmonton, <laughs> as was Tim Horton. So that was really kind of the start of a lot of different chain restaurants as well. And a beloved chain here in Newfoundland called Mary Brown's, which I think there are some in Ontario now, and that's a fried chicken chain. So a lot of chains kind of started getting on the go in the 1960s as well. <laughs> what are some of the ones that we look back on fondly that are not, for whatever reason, no longer around? Oh, well, in the 60s, I think Bill Wong's, uh, which is in Montreal, uh, it was actually one, it was the first Chinese food buffet in Canada. And he actually kind of like popularized the Chinese food buffet in Canada. So it no longer exists, but I know that it existed, you know, well into the 90s. So it was a beloved restaurant for a lot of people. So I know that one exists in Montreal for sure. When did that open? That opened in 1963 and closed in 2007. You mentioned that was in the 60s. Dining out, I can see being a Canadian thing, fast food, drive up to the window, etc. Buffets, are they an American thing? They are really an Actually, Bill Wong actually went, uh, he went to a wedding for a family member in the States and actually like went to a prime rib buffet and thought, oh man, like, okay, the way that we eat Chinese food is so family style that this would definitely serve itself for a buffet. So really for him, he was inspired by the ones that he went to in the States. Being a food writer, restaurant critic, what surprised you as you were putting this together? Well, you know what? I really think that the contribution of Greek immigrants, like there are so many dishes that we attribute as Canadian, um, Hawaiian pizza or the donaire, uh, and they were all invented by Greek immigrants. Uh, chain migration and pizza shops and all those things like that were uh, really a big part of their immigration story. And that is really like has a tremendous impact on where we eat all across Canada. Why do you think that is? I don't know, really. I think I think. Greek immigration was really interesting in Canada because it was uh, chain immigration, I think, was like very uh, acute with that population. I think that like a lot of people would move from like one tiny island in the Greek islands and all their brothers would move to the same town and then they would all kind of do the same thing. 
And that is kind of unique. Um, I mean, I think it does exist elsewhere, but chain migration in particular was really interesting with the Greek populations that came over the generations. What other ethnicities made an impact? Eastern European, uh, you'll see in the Ashkenazi Jewish population that came from Eastern Europe as well, had a big impact on our deli and diner scene, uh, and obviously Chinese Chinese food, I mean, like exploded at once the Chinese Exclusion Act in the 1940s uh, was repealed, then there was an explosion of Chinese food restaurants all across country. So, I mean, they probably have, I think there's a Chinese restaurant in every small town across Canada. They definitely are the most ubiquitous for sure. <laughs> Putting you on the spot here now. Best places to grab a bite in Toronto, your choice of cuisine. Oh, all right. Do you mean ones in the book or just like in general? Sure. <laughs> I would assume what you're about to tell us is in the book. Absolutely. Well, the the three that are still open and they're AR favorites of mine, they always were, are the Senator, um, which is downtown, a great diner. It's been open since the 20s. Um, and then United Bakers Dairy, which is a Jewish restaurant, a Jewish dairy restaurant uh, up in Fort Hill. And they are amazing. I love their latkes and they have a great pea soup. So they are two of my favorites for sure. Give us one more. We got to win place in a show, so we need somebody in third place here. A third one, <laughs> Korean Village. Uh, you know, Korean Village restaurant is like instrumental in founding Koreatown, uh, so they are definitely a great spot to go as well. Gabby Payton, your debut book, "Where We Ate." Maybe after hearing this, it's where some of us will eat. Thank you for your time. Thanks so much for having me. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Bob Comsick for Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.